dangerously close. My guest today is David Arditi. Now let's tell you something about David. David is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Texas at Arlington. He also serves as the director of the Center for Theory. His research is at the intersection of music, culture, and technology. His newest book is Digital Feudalism, Creators, Credit, Consumption, and Capitalism. David's other books include Streaming Culture, Subscription Platforms, and The Unending Consumption, Getting Signed, Record Contracts, Musicians, and Power in Society, and I Take Over, The Recording Industry and the Streaming Era. David co-edited The Dialectic of Digital Culture with Jennifer Miller. He also serves as editor of Fast Capitalism. How's that for a, a bio an introduction? <laughs> well, thank you very much, Doug. What's up, David? Uh, just living the life here I, in digital feudalism. I almost, I almost got all the way through that without a without a stumble. I think I messed up like some. I think I messed up a word like capitalism, like an easy word. <laughs> hey, folks, <laughs> speaking of digital feudalism, uh, what is digital feudalism? To people who have never heard that term, well, for me, I've noticed. Over the past couple decades, a significant change in the way capitalism operates. And I've struggled with thinking about how we describe that era. Um, my last book that you mentioned, Streaming Culture, I tried to call it this I, this period of unending consumption. And that, to me, just kind of sounded terrible. And it didn't encapsulate everything that was going on in um, capitalism at the moment. So, so what I think is happening is that there's three dominant aspects of, of capitalism in this moment. And those three, those three aspects are precarious labor, unending consumption, and debt peonage. So all three of those things work together uh, to create what I'm calling digital feudalism. Just to clarify, uh, peonage means it's kind of like the same as slavery, right? I mean, it's not a is it a synonym? Well, it's it's um, more kind of like what feudal serfs were in back in feudalism. So yeah. it, it's more like that, or kind of what came after slavery, which was sharecropping. Okay, very similar to that kind of idea. You're uh, free, but you're not you're free. A <laughs> yeah, you're pretty much not free. Um, you're not enslaved, but you can't get out of that system. So uh, when we think about debt peonage, it's it's a structure specifically in sharecropping where um, people are in debt to basically their employer. Yeah. Um, and there's no getting out of it because they uh, have to pay off that debt through labor. Yeah. There's a song about that, right? Uh, uh, the the company store. Ah, uh, yes. It's uh, another day older and deeper in, deeper in debt. I owe my soul to the company store. Absolutely, <laughs> and I actually bring that quote up in the book on the chapter on on debt peonage because the company store is quintessentially that. Um, I mean that that song came from West Virginia, um, working in the coal mines, and basically those coal miners. 
um, had no option but to shop at the stores owned by their bosses that they worked for through debt peonage. And um, so you might get a pay increase, but then your pay increase is going to get eaten up by going to the store and all the products uh, prices have gone up. Also, just man, not to tangent constantly, but I do want to shout out uh, uh, the company store. That song is the theme song to Joe versus the volcano, which I would say is my second favorite uh, Tom Hanks movie. So anybody, if you haven't seen it, watch <laughs> it. And it, and honestly, in a lot of ways, it encapsulates what we're talking about with digital feudalism. But from I mean, from a movie that was created in the eighties, but I mean they really hit the nail on the head then, you know, it's like climate change. People knew in the seventies that, you know, what climate change was, you know, it's, this is not uh, a lot of the stuff, you know, history repeating itself. And that's the whole name where digital feudalism comes from, because to me, what's going on looks a lot like the moment of feudalism before we hit capitalism. Yeah. Um, so there was this concept called primitive accumulation and in primitive accumulation, Basically, capitalism had not yet started. And instead of exploiting workers per se, um, the the burgeoning capitalists worked these nascent um, formations to get us into capitalism. And um, so when we look at feudalism and how we made that transition, one of the big things that I talk about in the book is this process of land enclosure. Um, so we all know the story of the English coming to America and talking to the Native Americans and going, oh, where's your property deed? Oh, you don't have a property deed? Well, guess what? The king is giving me this property and now I have it. Yeah. Well, this was like, um, what, what, what's kind of that victim psychology, right? Where... Uh, victims after something's done to them they then project that onto other people oh yeah yeah um and so the process of land enclosure had happened about 100 years one 100 to 200 years before the english came over to the americas and in that brutal process basically the feudal serfs you're stuck on the land of these the lords right which we now call landlords yeah. um you don't own the land, you work the land, and you get to keep a percentage of whatever you grow or make, and most of it goes back to the lords. But the idea of private property that we have in contemporary society didn't exist at that time. And so those feudal serfs lived on the land, they worked under this system. There was an idea that, right, it, the lords controlled that land. Um, but it wasn't owned privately the way we have private property now. Well, then the king and parliament started passing these things called land enclosure acts. And those land enclosure acts created little pieces of property that people own. And if you were the in the world of a serf, maybe supervisors got to keep land and then you were all of a sudden living on land that was not yours. And they basically said, well, you can continue to work the land, some of them, for a wage. And that's where we get this kind of burgeoning wage formation that we have today. Yeah. Or 
you could get off the land and go work in the city. But lo and behold, people were kicked off the land, they go to the cities, and there were no, not very many jobs for people to go work. Yeah. And as a result, they go into these cities and they became called vagabonds. And uh, one of the biggest atrocities of this time period in England was Henry VIII, who signed these land enclosure acts, killed 72,000 vagabonds. Holy shit. Which at that time, yeah, is a massive amount of the English population in the 1400s. Adjusted for inflation, that's like killing a million people, right? I mean, it's more than that. It's yeah. along the lines of the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, so it was this massive upheaval where people are killed. Those people that are desperate for jobs, right? They're not yet working in a under, um, capitalism they're not used to being workers the way we are we're we're taught from a very young age that we're going to go get a job work uh eight to ten hours a day and and for a particular wage and that's how we're going to pay for our food so they weren't used to that yet and those masses that were ejected from uh that agrarian life their labor got to go to the high the lowest bidder right yeah. <laughs> instead of the highest bidder since you have all these people labor is a commodity just like every other commodity and when you have more uh of a of a commodity out there the way the price of the commodity goes down so in this sense the more workers you have that need jobs the lower the wages go i'm reminded of another song lyric uh wake up go to work go to sleep die <laughs> that's i have a man i have a personal experience uh i mean i've been in and out of the gig economy a, a few times myself and you have brought that up and i you know it's obviously a very important part of like digital feudalism is this gig economy this you know you know extremely actually new addition to the way things are done and i uh this was a few years well it was actually quite a few years now actually at this point but i tore my mcl and I couldn't keep doing my my regular job because I couldn't stand on my leg. And so I started driving Lyft because I needed something I could do in a seated position <laughs> for hours a day. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this uh, have driven for Lyft or Uber or still do. And there's a lot of complaints I had about that job. Uh, I felt like the hours were very, very long to get any kind of money. The bonuses were like, you know, like the incentives were very like, uh, meager. And then what would really bother me would be like, I would be, you know, I'd drive Lyft for eight, 10 hours and I'd have to stop and get gas, you know, and with my own money refueling my own gas tank. So, you know, 30, 40 bucks goes into my gas tank out of, you know, what I, in some days I'd made, I'd made as low as 12, $10 an hour if it was a slow day. And then you just chip in, you know, 30% of your day's wages to refuel your car. And additionally, you're responsible for your tires and your, you know, so on and so forth. So, you know, fortunately, my leg healed and I was able to go back to, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it was a great job, but, you know, go back to doing some physical labor that I felt paid me better and I was just enjoyed more. Because I also don't super love driving uh, drunk 
people around in my car. <laughs> as, as we were saying right right before you came on the podcast, I live in Nashville. So the money, the money is if you're if you're a Lyft driver, you go downtown and you pick up the drunks. And sometimes they're fun, sometimes they are not fun. <laughs> so I was I was pleased to stop doing that. Um and so what you're what you're getting at and precarious labor, the gig economy is a big part of this. So a lot of my previous research to this book was all about the music industry. And at one point I, I did a research trip in Nashville and it was remarkable to me because I ended up taking a lot of Ubers. And what you see is the gig economy feeding the gig economy and it, the, the gig economy just keeps growing. So I think of musicians as kind of uh, going back couple centuries the original gig workers and they remain so today right that's where we get yeah. the term uh gig and so the irony was that most of the uber drivers i had when i started talking to them had moved to nashville to try to play shows and in their time off from playing music or their failure to get get gigs they drive uber so yeah. it's kind of a and you see this, you know, depending on what the economy is in different cities, you see um, if there is a strong kind of attraction to a particular area, if you go to L.A., you'll you might get a lot of struggling actors driving your Uber. Um, but it's it's that kind of easy, flexible labor. And then that produce reproduces itself because as people are willing to do that then more people have to work in those uh, in, in that atmosphere. It's interesting too, just the word gig, and especially since we're speaking about Nashville, and I know a lot of, ton of musicians and a lot of people that, uh, you know, they make a living at it, going downtown, playing the bars. And in, it's actually, it's very competitive. You know, if you get like a good slot, like if you, you know, if a popular bar is like, hey, every Tuesday and Thursday night, that's your slot. You can actually do all right, but you know, but that's the thing about that. You call it a gig, you know, my whole life, the word gig always meant music. It always meant you were going to go play music, you know, and as a musician myself, I'd, I would always say I had a gig. I'd be like, oh, I got a gig at, you know, this bar. I got a gig at this venue. You know, I'd, it's crazy to, you know, to now people are like, oh, a gig is driving your own car around endlessly. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to point out, I guess what my point was, was when you go and play music, that's what you want to be doing. And it is potentially a step toward maybe further on doing what you really want to be doing, which is, of course, writing and performing your own music, which is not, you know, what they really let you do in the downtown bars here. But <laughs> I, <don't, laughs> I feel like I took us a little off track. Um, I have a question. Uh, just <laughs> do you mind if I bring up Squid Game? For just one second, sure, absolutely. <laughs> uh, hypothetically, you know, I'm going to bring up Amazon and Squid Game. Hypothetically, let's say uh, if Amazon right now proposed doing a Squid Game with their employees, would the Supreme Court rule in favor of letting them do that? <laughs> <laughs> the Supreme Court, uh, possibly, right? I mean, unfettered capitalism. Um, I don't know if they'd let people <laughs> kill themselves, but uh, within limits, right? Uh, yeah. In, in a very real way, a lot of our, a lot of the time when people are 
uh, doing different gig economy work, they're, they're not guaranteed any kind of salary. And if you can't make ends meet and you're not collecting unemployment and different benefits, um, then the struggle to feed yourself and survive is real. So yeah. we are really just like in Squid Game competing with each other to survive. Yeah. I, I had seen uh, someone once point out, and no offense, I know a lot of um, veterans and soldiers listen to this, but people have pointed out that when like recruiter, like, like army recruiters go into schools saying, hey, if you join up and you fight in this war, when you come back, you'll get to go to college for free. So in a way, that's very much a squid game style of uh, incentive, I, I would say. It's like you're, uh, you're putting your life on the line. You know, you could definitely die or be seriously injured. But at the end of the day, they're like, well, then you get to go to college. Couldn't agree more with that, right? Um, not not the practice, but yeah, the the comparison that you're making. And I think that especially during the height of Afghanistan and Iraq, um, that that was the pitch. Yeah, you can get yourself out of poverty if you go become cannon fodder. But uh, I guess I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna move away from Squid Game like really soon. But I I did bring it up because I had seen that. You had written about it, um, something about uh, Squid Game uh, in real life. What, what did you mean by that, or what, what was what was the topic that you were writing on? Well, it's it's just this idea, and for your listeners that maybe didn't see Squid Game, uh, which I, you got to be living under a rock. Uh, my <laughs> wife wouldn't watch it. Um, it is it is disturbing. People, it, it starts off kind of with this guy who's massively in debt. Um, uh, and from, from failed gig economy work, he, he wanted to be a limo driver and he owned loan sharks money. Um, so ultimately he meets this guy on the subway and the guy on the subway is like, and, and the guy that that's in debt, he's a gambler kind of person. Uh, he has a lot of gambling debts and, they want to play uh, this game to Jackie. I'm probably not saying that correctly, but it's kind of like Pog. Or you you throw this piece of paper at another piece of paper to try to flip it. Okay. Uh, and he didn't have the money after the first round. And the guy was like, well, look, I'll just slap you every time. And he slaps the crap out of him. And then says, you want to go again? He's like, sure. And then eventually he starts making money, but, you know, getting yeah. slapped over and over again. And afterwards, the guy says, well, you know, if you want to do more like this, here's my card. You can make big money doing this kind of thing. Yeah. So ultimately, he does it. You know, several hundred people go to this this game. And basically, they play children's games. And if they... The, only one person can survive and in these games they're killed they play red light green light um anybody that moves during red light green light gets mowed down by guns um and so you know that every game's different 
Uh, but ultimately, only one person can survive. And in the background, there's these nefarious rich people that are betting on it. And these people are just disgusting, not just the fact that they're betting on it, but um, they just are these disgusting human beings and they're incredibly wealthy. We find out this goes on and on. Um, but I think that there's a contemporary parallel in the fact that that's exactly what we do. We put ourselves out there in different ways to be exploited by um, the Jeff Bezos and Elon Musks of the world who operate in the background. They make billions of dollars and we struggle to survive. Yeah. And one of those ways we struggle to survive is by getting like massive amounts of credit card debt. In many ways, even when it's not being fed into the people aren't being fed into the prison industrial complex, they're going to drive for Amazon. Yeah. Or they're working in a distribution center. Yeah. And they may or may not be actual Amazon employees. And they're making minimum wage and um they're just struggling to survive on that which means they also have to do other things, right? So one of, I think the best examples that, that I saw of this uh, process was I saw early on in, in Amazon delivery, not early on in Amazon delivery, but as they started hiring their own drivers on, on gig work. Yeah. I saw a USPS postal worker in uniform driving her own car after hours, delivering Amazon products. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and and working for the USPS is a pretty good gig. I have a brother-in-law that works for them. He works a lot of overtime, uh, collects a lot of overtime pay, and he, he's got good benefits um, with no college education. He's, he's kind of living his own dream. Yeah. But the very fact that somebody would then have to go and work for like, I don't know the woman's situation and you know, she's just trying to survive working for yeah. Amazon to deliver these things. Yeah. I've actually, I've noticed a lot of, so I had a, a baby shower recently and a lot Congratulations. of people, Thank you so much. Uh, and a lot of people couldn't uh, be there in person. So I received a lot of Amazon packages and yeah, it, like the variety of people, because there's, you know, there's the Amazon vans that look like, you know, that, but I remember one day uh, this person pulled up in my driveway and like got out of the car and like this like huge cloud of weed smoke came out with them. And I was like, I was like, oh, who's, I was like, who is this? Like, is this, is this a friend of mine? Like, you know, like that I just can't place because it just seemed like someone that was there to visit me. Like who else would show up like? you know, in a old, like shitty beat up car puffing on a blunt. And then uh, she just threw an Amazon package on the porch. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> How then I was like, good for, good for her for making the best of a bad situation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, more power to her. Yeah. Oh, I mean, come on. <laughs> if you're going to, if you're going to do it, at least, you know, do it right. I got a, I got a buddy that, um, uh, He's doing DoorDash right now, and that's his whole, like, 
you know, there's you got to find ways to make these things enjoyable. And that's his whole thing is he smokes and listens to music the entire time. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he tries to get exercise. So he's like, whenever he gets to an apartment building, he like, you know, tries to run the stairs as fast as he can. You got to just do whatever you can in life to, right. you know, maximize your, you know, the time that you're wasting on these gig jobs. But and and I, I also you know want to point out it's not just the the drivers and delivery drivers and musicians and Airbnb operators uh, or um, people who clean the Airbnbs right you have these different levels of gig economy operation um, and what I think is the biggest problem is that these gig economy jobs keep expanding and into new areas. Yeah. Um, so there's uh, things like Amazon Turk, right. Where you, you've got this kind of global level of people who do the, the gig work uh, translation, for instance, is big on Amazon Turk where you can pay people small amounts of money to complete tasks for you. Um, but that allows people to do translation in the global south. So where a translator might cost you $25 an hour in the United States, you can pay $1 to translate something to somebody in India. Yeah. And so it proliferates that global economy. You put that translator in the United States out of work, who then has to go find gig work in some other way. And we see that moving up the ladder um increasingly uh in academia where i work uh we have more and more adjuncts who get paid per class they get paid crap yeah. right they're getting paid like 1500 to 3000 dollars to teach a class they they can only teach like five classes a semester so you, you know you, you do the math there are people often with phds that are living in poverty yeah um and one of the things I talk about in books uh, or in the book is uh, the advent of Patreon and Medium. And you have um, more and more journalists that are working as freelance workers who uh, have to scrape by doing all these different stories, places where um, journalism was a professional job where people got hired by newspapers and now they get contracted by I, I uh I don't you know actually I don't like to use, I don't use the word victim to describe myself but I uh I was an I was an experiencer of that because I have a degree in journalism and I graduated right at the end of journalism or journalism as you know as it has been known for you know all of American history is basically when I graduated, that's when all the newspapers in my city, like like one of them collapsed, one of them went completely digital, fired almost all their staff. I couldn't get an internship. Like I just immediately went on to just doing other shit. Like I was like, this is not, not a real job. I just because I had uh you know, I had been in print journalism. I had planned on starting out of a you know, at a local newspaper, moving on from there, and that that opportunity even even the most entry-level bullshit you know writing obituaries type thing that's always existed was gone <laughs> right uh and 
so one of the processes that I think happened, I remember how a lot of people discussed it in that moment and continue to like um, basically the internet killing newspapers. Well, it wasn't really the internet that killed newspapers. It was newspaper conglomerates yeah. that killed newspapers. And and there's an interesting story that I'll come back around to about Gannett. Um, but you, you've got these organizations, these corporations like Gannett that just started buying up newspapers and shutting them down or centralizing them. Um, but if you need local news in the middle of nowhere... You still need reporters in the middle of nowhere, but instead of working for a newspaper, they work freelance. So something happens. I live in Texas and in Dallas, Fort Worth area. But when you get out into the country, there's very sparsely populated areas of Texas. Things still happen there. Yeah. <laughs> and they need people to cover those things. So they might not be incredibly local, but they have to live in an area. So, you know, the Gannett Corporation says, hey, we'll buy somebody to write this story about this thing that's happening. Go out there. And then they do it and they get their piece rate uh, and go back. But then the interesting thing that I recently saw, and I don't know if you heard about this, um, the European Union ruled that Google was a monopoly on their advertising. Um, and so they have to make adjustments over there, which will inevitably mean that they make adjustments in the United States. Gannett, the largest newspaper conglomerate in the United States, who also owns the, uh, the they are USA Today, which is the largest newspaper in the United States. They're suing Google for being a monopoly in advertising. Which is like the pot calling the kettle black, right? Yeah. I mean, here we have a newspaper monopoly that's now suing a newspaper monopoly. I don't know. It, it, it's so meta, I can't, and it's so digital feudalism, I can't get my head around it yet. It's it's almost, you know, it's it's no wonder that, too, like, with the, uh, the, the lack of, I hate, I hate this fucking term so much, but, uh, the, the fake news thing whenever Trump started saying that in 2015 and it just caught on and I could that the lack of people believing in the authority of news anymore but no wonder because for instance you know like a lot of like a lot of journalists I know they're on Substack it's like what you're saying they're uh they're on medium they're doing yeah they're doing everything on their own they're asking you for like a five dollar uh subscription to keep them so they can do their profession. <laughs> right and and then yeah then you have these like you know this uh just very sparse you know like this scarcity of media variety in the news so it does you know i'm not like not that i'm like trying to uh defend the people you know the people that don't know anything but they want to like argue with you about like bio engineering and vaccinology and all this shit because they get their news from Facebook, but in a way, like, you know, the newspaper conglomerates did that to all of us. Like, <laughs> right. They've killed authority. Yeah. There, yeah. There is no authority. Even the, now the New York times is just one other source amongst 
hundreds of thousands of people out there on the internet being like, no, actually, I know the truth. And and, <laughs> and the New York Times paywalls everything. Yeah. So my favorite, and I mentioned this in the chapter on Medium and Patreon, um, the kind of cyber libertarian ideology that information wants to be free and this argument that you can find anything on the internet. The sources that are most important are behind paywalls. Yeah. So just yesterday, I subscribed to the Washington Post through Amazon. Because <laughs> Jeff Bezos owns Amazon uh, or the Washington Post. And um, I had re factory reset my tablet. And I subscribed to the Washington Post. It's on my wife's password and she can't remember her password. So I was limited to seeing like two stories on my tablet on the Washington <laughs> Post. We gotta we gotta like find it. Um but that's the newspaper of record in the United States of America. Yeah. People should just be able to read it. There's advertising even when you're subscribed. Not yeah. a whole lot is being lost and not having subscribers, but people can't access that. They can't access the real information, so they access the fake information. It's yeah. It's interesting you say that. Yeah, you know, like that's the uh, that's the Watergate newspaper. I mean, those what a history. And yeah, now it's just kind of like it's it's inaccessible, and people are not necessarily uh, inclined to subscribe to a newspaper, especially now that everyone thinks that all news is fake and all. But you know, this kind of uh, draws me into another uh, subject. And it's about subscriptions and kind of what you brought when you said earlier, I think you believe you uh, said unending consumption. What do you think about the practice of instead of buying and owning things, uh, having subscriptions that create kind of a cycle of endless consumption? Does that make sense? Right. And so that I mean, that's actually the first thing, right, is we have to pay more and more um for these things, which leads us into doing the precarious work and then needing debt to pay for more things. Um, but what I think they've actually done with subscriptions is increase the amount that we have to pay to get access cultural content that we used to not pay. Yeah. And that's another driver of expanding capitalism. Um, and that that's, kind of brings us back to that moment of primitive accumulation again. Um, but if you look at music, um, the average consumer in the heyday of CDs, and this goes back to records, it, it, it just goes back. If you look at um, the Recording Industry Association of America's numbers, the average American spent $45 in music or $45 a year on recorded music that that tracks yeah it's about three three, you, three or four cds right um and you buy those and you have them forever yeah so you know if you're buying three cds a year after three years you have nine cds and nobody can take those away from you yeah uh they you can do a lot with them you can borrow them you can rip them you can or sell, resell them. These things yeah. are all protected 
by fair use. If you subscribe to music, you now you're paying $10 a month, $120 a year, which is a 300% increase, I think. I'm not the best at calculating increases. Over what the average American used to spend. But at the end, you've got nothing to show for it if you decide not to. So instead of having, you know, 10, 9 or 10 CDs at the end of the year that you can listen to ad nauseum, yeah. you have not, you've paid for a service at a much higher rate than you ever spent on music before. And, you know, we, I, I could go on and on about how the distribution of that money that you spent is not fair. Uh, but the fact of the matter is you're paying $120 for music. And then you've got all the streaming services. You might stream your video games, right? You uh, either paying an Xbox or a Nintendo. Um, and increasingly, you have to pay for so many TV services just to watch what's going on. Yeah. My wife and I were on Netflix, or my parents' Netflix account, and for years. Now they just changed the Netflix thing where we can no longer uh, access Netflix from a different household. Um, so we've decided to take a break from Netflix. And we did the thing I was resisting for a long time, which was subscribe to Apple TV Plus because I was dying to see Ted Lasso. Yeah. So now we're, we're, we're trying to figure out ways to kind of cycle through our subscriptions. Not try not to have them all at one time because that would be a fortune. Yeah. yeah. Because Everything is more and more, even things like Paramount and um, uh, what's the NBC one? Um, oh, Peacocks. Peacock, right? Things that are available through, we have a Hulu Live subscription. We can watch everything we want to through that, except yeah. now, now NBC has original content that's not aired on any of their other networks that <laughs> they own and control. Now you have to subscribe to Peacock. And um, they get great shows like Netflix with Squid Game to entice consumers to come subscribe to them. And then the hope is you, you subscribe to more and more and forget that you're actually subscribed and they can keep cashing in on those subscriptions that aren't even paying for anything. Bring uh, speaking of Apple, they're very sneaky about that. Uh, if you buy a new iPhone, they automatically give you an Apple Television subscription without telling you. Like you have, like it's it's only if you uh, check, like if you check your bill and you realize you've been paying five dollars a month for a thing you didn't know you had. That's that happened okay. to me, and it's happened to like at least three other people I know. Have mentioned that yeah microsoft was big on this i remember xbox live i had a free subscription with my when i first started and it rolled over five bucks a month i wasn't actually playing people online i was just accessing the internet through my xbox which i'm already paying for yeah and when i contacted microsoft they were like after it started going oh there's nothing we can do about your five dollars, it's like, well, yes, you can. <laughs> yeah, you can. You can refund it, and we can move <laughs> on from this. 
Um, but that's how they ultimately make their money. And so that also brings us to the debt part. Yeah. Right. Which as we have to keep spending more and more on necessities, the only option is to go further and further into debt. Yeah. And capitalism doesn't really care how you do it. Apple wants you to buy a new iPhone. So Apple doesn't care how you pay for that phone, but they need you to pay for that phone. And really the American economy and global economy need you to pay for that phone because somebody makes that phone. And that helps keep people employed, even if they're in crappy jobs. Yeah. So we we get into more and more debt in different ways. Um, and again, this this is part of primitive accumulation when um, those feudal serfs were kicked off the land. Uh, they went into debt in various ways. But that was also when the national debt first became a thing. And the national debt basically gave birth to the military industrial complex, right? So um, European countries started buying weapons of war on debt, uh, which put people to work making those weapons. So it's like a backhanded way of creating almost like a socialist project, but instead of paying the people directly, we pay for commodities that are in fact being produced by people that were paying to work low wages. <laughs> so it'd be a much more efficient system if it was like, well, here's a living wage, go live on it. We don't have a job for you, but like, you're good. You're good to go. It's, Instead, uh, it's, it's almost as if uh, they're funneling all of the wealth and resources to like the very top 1% of the human beings on the planet. Yes, exactly. So, in, and now you see this most um, clearly with, again, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. The federal government, instead of paying for NASA and paying these private companies like Boeing, to produce the, the aircraft now uh nasa contracts with these billionaires to just give them the money yeah that they would have otherwise just done in-house right um to send the shuttles to space yeah companies were contracted to build the things but nasa launched it they did everything behind it they owned the shuttles. Now, uh, uh, Blue Horizon is it Blue Horizon and is that the Virgin the Virgin guy, Virgin Airlines guy, Richard Branson? And so then I think maybe uh, Jeff Bezos. Yeah, Blue I think that Horizon might be or Blue Origin. Yeah. Or... Well, there's the there's the third guy. There's the but there's the Virgin so... Mobile guy. He's got he's got his own spaceship right. too. His is something like Virgin Space. <laughs> you know. Um, but they all do these things and the federal government gives them tons of money that they do nothing for. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest ironies is like Jeff Bezos effective tax rate is like 0.8% or something. Yeah. Um, and he, he gets far more money from the federal government than 
than he pays. I feel like uh, Mackenzie Bezos, uh, probably one of the uh, most effective people to ever tax that fucking guy, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and and those are are big ideas, but on the the low level, we take out more credit cards and um, student debt. The Supreme Court ruling yesterday. Um, we're recording this the day after the Supreme Court ruling saying that Joe Biden can't cancel yeah. student debt. I'm still fuming. Student debt is like the prime idea behind digital feudalism. Yeah. Oh, you want to go get a better job, go into debt to get a college education and then pay it back to um, the federal government, to um different private loan companies private loan servicers you you pay these for this education and then you have to pay back in the long run working in precarious employment to pay back for the thing that should be free to begin with yeah and meanwhile you have this track of wealthy people who don't take out student loans they have generational wealth and they get better jobs because they get into better universities and they they pay more from it. So even two people that are in get the same job coming out of college, the person who is indebted with student loans is paying for that money while or paying for that education, while the person that had it paid for through generational wealth is already saving. Yeah. So you have this immense inequity. Um, and there's this feeling that, oh, well, you took out the loan, you need to pay for it, which is truly blaming the victim in all of this. These are people trying to find a way out of poverty. And um, the people who have are not in poverty get to stand on those other people and say, oh, you you owe me, you owe my money. Yeah. And, you know, it's and also the fact that on the assumption that you do get one of these higher paying jobs, but more often than not, you go get a four year degree and then you are, you know, a line cook and paying it off with your hourly wage. Right. And so then you have to take out credit card debt. Yeah. To pay for things. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, you have to take out loans to pay for different things. A quick shift over to another billionaire. Uh Hard to say. I, I would say Elon Musk is probably the billionaire that I absolutely despise the most. Uh, but, you know, I probably mentioned that once every episode. Uh, but I was going to say I was going to take a, a, a quick detour to something that I never speak about and I don't understand at all. And that's uh, like, here's my understanding of the metaverse, which is it's like silly. I don't really have an understanding, but it's that, you know, Facebook made like a cartoon vr program that people can have like conference calls in i i really don't i mean i i i don't really know i don't think i know anybody that really uses the metaverse but obviously what i just said can't be it or can it i don't know uh what is your take on the metaverse one of my chapters looks specifically at how a day in the life of the metaverse could look and basically the dream which may or may not come to fruition is that we would sit at our computers and work all day and every movement, everything that we do can be both commodified and surveilled. 
to control workers. Um, so Amazon, for instance, has this thing that, that they, they changed the name of, but they didn't get rid of, uh, called time off task time. Uh, and so every time an Amazon worker in a factory, you know, is going to the bathroom or talking to their supervisor at their supervisor's desk, it's observed and they get dinged for time off. Um, the dream would be for us to be sitting at our computer in this kind of um, virtual reality and we can go leave our house to go. Uh, I do all this fun stuff like you go have eat with your friend and breakfast at Panera in the morning. You buy the same clothes that your avatar in the metaverse is wearing. Um, you then like walk to work from Panera while you're at Panera, you can order food and Panera would actually deliver it with a gig worker to your door while you're still having breakfast. But every movement that you have becomes observed. Not different from George Orwell's 1984, right? Yeah. But we're perfectly on this computer and every little task that we do uh, through the cameras on our computers can be observed as time off task. You go talk, you get maybe 10 minutes of virtual water cooler talk in the break room for the day. Um, but even if you get up from your actual computer to go to the actual bathroom, that's known because the, you're away from the computer. And so the dream is to just have you constantly in this thing working and playing yeah um, so in the, in, maybe in a, in a pod with a catheter in uh, <laughs> maybe a feeding tube right you fully become just the like the worst part of the matrix where you're just in the, the you know like the pod that neo wakes up in <laughs> and you know some of the flack that amazon caught was there were their drivers peeing in bottles and in, in their vans because there was number one nowhere for them to go to bat to the bathroom, but they would lose so much time to stop somewhere and go use the bathroom. Yeah, that they're they're doing this. Um, so I mean that's the dream of the metaverse, and you different companies are buying plots of land, and again here's that enclosure idea from from the end of feudalism um you can buy plots of land from cisco or facebook uh to have this virtual office space on some server somewhere um which is degrading the environment and doing all these other things um but th that that idea of digital becomes very real and then we work in these digital spaces uh, and we interface with gig workers or we are gig workers ourselves in that space. It reminds me, there's a, there's a prof prophetic uh, short story by Philip K. Dick about a, it's basically an Amazon factory that's fully automated and AI'd and it uh, continuously produces products that no one can use anymore because humanity, like society is completely collapsed. And what it, all it's doing is uh, using up all of the like clean, drinkable water, 
destroying all the arable land, making it like impossible for people to grow crops and causing extinction by like perpetually uh, producing Amazon products and drone mm-hmm. delivering them to, to like what's left of this like apocalyptic society. Exactly. Um, and so the, in, when you started thinking about server farms, I, that just, uh, my mind just went to like cryptocurrency. Yeah. Um, and this time of year in Texas, uh, we start getting asked by our electric companies to, you know, turn the, the temperature up so we're not use, killing our crappy grid. Um, but the irony is you have these crypto companies that m- move to Texas because of the lack of regulation. And what they are much harder on the grid, just like any server. And it's terrible pollution. But then the state government actually pays them to turn off their server farms on these high days. So where crypto is like this imaginary currency, they get real currency for not (laughs) taxing the grid. It's this really weird phenomenon. So that's really where the metaverse hits the like real world. I have a, you know, I I can't uh, leave Silicon Valley completely alone right now because now that people are becoming more and more aware that the way people used to feel about uh, the the typical Wall Street bro, you know, during the uh, Occupy, Occupy Wall Street days, I think a lot of people are kind of waking up to the reality that the Silicon Valley folks are just as bad or worse. And uh I, and I think we just talked about AI for a second. I was going to say that it, it seems like, and I can't say for certain because I don't keep up with every single person in Silicon Valley or what they're doing, but it seems like no one in, in Silicon Valley is working on an AI that will eliminate sweatshop labor or other dangerous, unpleasant jobs. It seems like it's mostly, they're trying to destroy like screenwriting and illustration. Uh, do you think they're not microdosing enough? <laughs> i mean uh yeah maybe they should stop microdosing and real dosing uh yeah to, to maybe you guys need impact. to take a, a a macro dose to come up with that very simple idea that i just <laughs> david i gotta tell you something man we are getting yeah. dangerously close to the lightning round uh the lightning round we do it at the end of every episode i ask you a series okay. of questions extremely fast no time to think you just got a gut reaction um also these days i don't write these so i have no idea what is on here this was written by co-producer colleen um all i told her was fast capitalism and so let's see what she came up with all right it looks like she took (laughs) took that uh and inspired it into kind of like a fast food kind of socio-political style lightning round it's an either or but you are always free to uh, say neither or abstain. Uh, are you ready to play? Yes. All right. Lightning round by co-producer Colleen. For each fast food franchise mascot character, pick the socio-political identity that you think best fits them. <laughs> uh, let's get started. Okay. Wendy from Wendy's. Is she an intersectional feminist or a turf? Turf. Yeah, hands down. She's a turf. All right. <laughs> Ronald McDonald. 
a libertarian or communist? Libertarian. The Chick-fil-A cows. This is going to be tough. Are the Chick-fil-A cows... <laughs> are the Chick-fil-A cows Proud Boys or the anti-woke mob? Proud Boys. Yeah, they have a they, they have a Proud Boy vibe to them. The Jack in the Box guy. I think his name's just Jack, right? And who knows? That was uh, right. Is he a uh, laissez-faire capitalist or an anarcho-capitalist? Anarcho-capitalist. <laughs> yeah, he he seems like he's just like nuts, man. He's a giant stoner. <laughs> uh, ooh, I haven't thought about this guy in forever. Uh, Chuck E. Cheese Mouse, I believe. The oh, I, his name is Charles. I used to know Chuck E. Cheese's like full real name and what the E stood for, <laughs> but I can't dredge it out of my memory right now. But it is very funny. Uh, Chuck E. Cheese Mouse is he a MAGA or an anarchist? MAGA. <laughs> uh, Colonel Sanders. I haven't thought about him. So Colonel Sanders from KFC, a blue dog Democrat or a rhino? Blue dog Democrat. I see it. He's kind of he's got that Dixiecrat kind of thing from like the yeah. from the nineteen sixties, you know. Yeah. Uh, all right. And last but absolutely not least, the Taco Bell Chihuahua. Is he a Bernie bro or Antifa? Ooh, neither. <laughs> neither. <laughs> what is he, man? <laughs> Taco Bell Chihuahua. He's got to be. Some kind of crass capitalist. Okay, <laughs> you heard it here first. The Taco Bell Chihuahua. He 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 may he may embody the live moss mentality, but he is no Bernie bro. Uh, David, it has been absolutely amazing having you on the podcast. I have one last question I have to ask you though, and that is this: um, Where can people uh, find you? Check you out. Where can they find your books? Uh, uh, where can they follow you? All of that kind of stuff. Uh, well, I'm on Twitter at David underscore Arditi, A-R-D-I-T-I. And you can always find me on there. I tweet a lot. And um, I have a website, DaveArditi.com. Uh, um, and there's links to all my books. Cool. Yeah, guys, check it out. Read Digital Feudalism. It'll blow your mind. Thanks, yeah, David. Thank you. thank you for having me.